Welcome to the Where Humanity Meets Technology podcast, where we talk to business leaders about cybersecurity, data management, and advanced digital solutions to provide strategies to increase the profitability of your company. Now, here's your host, Maurice Hamilton, the CEO of Infinivate Consultancy Services. Hello, everyone, and welcome to our podcast, Where Humanity Meets Technology. This is a podcast show where I interview founders, CEOs, CIOs, CTOs, and other business leaders to discuss real-life solutions of humanity utilizing technology for the betterment of their organizations and for the betterment of mankind. Topics may vary from data management, cybersecurity, custom software development, and digital solutions. We also discuss trends in technology, such as the use of artificial intelligence, robotics, decentralization resources, cryptography, and blockchain. I'm your, your host, Maurice Hamilton, and welcome to today's episode, where I am honored to have Dr. Ken Napton as our guest here. Dr. Ken Napton, good to see you here. How's everything going? Wonderful. Thank you for having me. I'm looking forward to a fun conversation. Excellent. 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 So really happy to have a conversation with you. My first question, I like to kind of like uh, uh, break the ice a little bit and talk a little bit about what I call a genesis question. And when I say genesis, I would like to have a conversation about how you actually, your career has progressed over the years and where did you start off and and, uh, and where are you today? Can you actually give us a little insight as, as to that? Oh, yeah. Ha- happy to do it. So, uh, you know, I first learned about computers in high school and was uh, um, amazed when I learned that people actually program computers. I thought, wow, that's that's just a fun thing. So uh started learning about how to how to do that. And that's that's where I really started my career was in uh, programming uh, uh, back at WordPerfect many, many years ago. Um, so I, I, you know, I, I I got my job there at uh, WordPerfect. I, I remember sitting there at my desk with the, you know, the lights off and uh, the, the headphones on and, you know, working away at my computer. And I thought, this is it, right? This, this, this is my career. I'm going to sit in this chair doing this until the day I die. Um, and, and, you know, of course things never work out the way we expect. Right. And uh, started to realize that uh, I actually enjoyed talking with people and and so you know once in a while moving away from the screen and actually talking to another human and uh so i, I started kind of learning how to lead teams and uh started talking about architecture and and how to build systems and get data from one system to another and and you know helping people work through technical problems and and really enjoyed that and, and so I started kind of moving into this architectural uh, kind of a role. Uh, and, and then as I, as I kind of solidified that, that uh, part of my career, moved more into kind of the management role. And that's when I started uh, moving into working at several startups and, and taking on the CTO role, helping different companies uh, kind of get their footing and, and really solidify their technology. After a few years in, in those roles, working with different uh, startups in the high-tech area, I, I moved into uh, kind of the CIO seat. I, I took on more of an operational view, uh, moved beyond talking about architecture of, of systems and, and component design, and really started applying that across enterprise systems and, and not just custom developed software, but all of the various systems that an enterprise needs uh, in order to function. And, and so that's how I kind of moved into the CIO seat. I've worked in various 
industries. I've been in healthcare. I've been in high tech. I've been in nonprofit. Uh, and I've, I've spent quite a bit of time in the financial services world. I've worked in uh, mortgage companies uh, and now uh, working for uh, Progression, where we, uh, we, we focus also in the financial services arena, focused specifically on, on credit repair. Um, and so kind of taken this, this you know, operational view, architectural view, um, focused most of my career on security and, and data and, uh, and, and that's, that's kind of where I've, I've ended up now in, in, in uh, you know, the CIO seat at, at Progression. Wow, that's an amazing story. And something that we, you and I have in common, we both started off as software developers and engineers way back in the day. And you mentioned WordPerfect, and I thought about WordPerfect and Lotus 1, 2, 3. And yep, yep. This is over the years. And, and, I, and I, I agree with you, and I really like how you actually mentioned how the the the, uh, the landscape has changed a little bit more. Now you're looking at the different the levels of the enterprise, and with the different applications out there. Where back in the day, it was pretty much a uh, an application. You may have it connected to like a network, and uh, people have floppy disk and everything just connected with uh, all the applications. And none of the big storage like we have today were cloud. Yeah, yeah. No, th- things have evolved, right? And, and to a certain extent, uh, we've almost come full circle, right? Mm-hmm. Where where we had kind of standalone computers right and then all of a sudden we started connecting them and then you know we went from the mainframe to kind of standalone pcs and then back to kind of the cloud which is really just connecting everything out to this big mainframe that isn't a mainframe right it's 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 cloud systems but really we've kind of taken this full circle now to uh, where our computers are once again almost dumb terminals with everything being done somewhere else right the somewhere else used to be a mainframe now it's the cloud so uh, yeah it, it's been interesting to watch that 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 transition over time and 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 i like you mentioned that you actually work with progression right now you were in the like the financial industry hub that's kind of evolved over the years when you think about the uh, financial uh, well like the credit I'll, I'll put those in the same group is that financial credit that's still you classify those in the same group what would you say right now would be um some of the biggest elements that actually that that, that a big focus area for you today would be uh, would it would it be like infrastructure? Would it be the applications? What what would that look like today? Yeah, it's it's, it's really interesting that like I said, I've worked in various uh, companies in the financial services arena. I've 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 uh, worked in in mortgages. I've worked at a bank, mm-hmm. and now in in credit repair, and. Really, the, the the challenges across, even though those verticals are very different, mm-hmm. challenges are really all very similar. And 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 really, it, it comes down to technical debt. And 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 I, I hate to use this this kind of common term of the digital transformation because everybody is talking about the transformation now, and it it just becomes such a common term that it doesn't really mean much anymore. Um, but that really is the biggest challenge right now is trying to take existing systems that have been used for years and, and modernizing them and, and really moving into, you know, the, the, the more current cloud-based world. Uh, and, and again, that's been a challenge in the mortgage industry. It's been a challenge at the bank and it's, it's a challenge uh, for us in, in, in the credit repair world here at Progression. 
Okay. And when when you mentioned the credit repair with your organization, are a lot of the employees actually virtual employees, or or is everyone still in the uh, the main corporate office? How does that look today? Yeah. So so you know, just like everyone else with with COVID, everyone went home and started working from home. Now, when 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 COVID hit, I was actually still working at the bank. I, I've been at Progression for a year now, so still fairly new. Um, but similar stories. Right when I was at, at the bank, the the philosophy was, hey, we can't work from home. We we have to be sitting in the building in our seats here, and uh, and and it was actually, I think January uh, of 2020 when I remember sitting with our with our executive staff and saying, hey, you know what, we should just as a test of our of our DR plan, we should just pick a day sometime this year, send everybody home, and see if they can still do their jobs. And, uh, and, and the response was, oh, no, we can't do that. We're never going to be able to function. We, we, couldn't, we couldn't make that happen. And then, you know, a month later, we sent everybody home. And guess what? They did their jobs, right? And, and so it's a similar thing at Progression. They had all sent everybody home. Uh, and now that things are returning to normal, we're along with everyone else trying to figure out what does the new hybrid environment look like? Uh, and so we're starting to bring people back into the office um, on, on a fairly regular basis, really directors and above coming in uh, once or twice a week, but everyone else really uh, still kind of working, working from home. Now we also have a large, that, that's the corporate office. We also have a large uh, call center um, a portion of our, of our population at, at progression. And that's really geographic as far as, who we can continue to have working from home and who we bring into the office. For example, we have a, a call center that's very close to a university and uh, we have a lot of university students that, 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 that work for us and they can't work from home, right? You can't, you can't do their job from a dormitory. So they're coming back into the office. Whereas in other geographies, um, you know, we have a call center, but, but a lot of people are still, taking the calls from home. And so we're still kind of working our way through figuring out what that looks like uh, for the long term for us. Okay. Yeah, it's a really big thing. But you watch the news and and read the information out there. A lot of companies are battling with that. How do they actually make that happen? How do you actually work it so that uh, that you can still keep that productivity up to the same levels or higher than they were before and still make everyone happy and feel safe too? Yeah. Yeah, it's it's a big transition, right? Because uh, again, I think that um, a lot of a lot of companies, a lot of executives had the impression that if we send everybody home, we're not going to have the productivity, right? It's just going to stop, and people are not going to be focused. And the pandemic taught us that we can actually have these jobs done from from a remote environment, and and, and so now the executives want people back in the in the building. But a lot of the employees are saying, I don't have to go back because I can do my job. I'm doing it just fine. I'm performing just fine. And, and again, this isn't, this isn't limited to the financial services industry. This isn't just progression. It's across the board. Uh, companies are having to figure out how do, we, how do we create a hybrid environment and what does that look like? And I think I think we'll get there. I don't think we're going to have 100% work from home in the future. I, I think that everybody will be more of a hybrid environment, but each company has to figure out what that looks like for them. And I think I my my prediction is 
we'll have, you know, one to two days in the office and, and the rest working from home. And, and I think that's where most companies will, will end up in the future. Okay. I agree with you. Um, and it, speaking of predictions, I was using the analogy. I was speaking with a group of people about a week ago, and I gave them the analogy of like a, an arena where you have like 18,000 people going to watch a sporting event. And I, and I gave it the example that if you actually have all those people coming inside of it and then, and they actually sign like a terms and agreement for the ticket that when they came inside of it, and I said that information, if someone was able to collect like data on them and actually monitor them, and then they sign an agreement where it says that no, because nobody reads the fine print anymore, and they walk out of the stadium and they're they're still being monitored. And I think that one of the biggest things that we're facing right now is actually data. How do you protect the data? And I think that's one of the most valuable assets for corporations. And um, and I, and I would like to hear your thoughts and opinion on because we have the examples of what's happening with the data. We saw what GD, what Europe did with the GDPR a few years ago. And, uh, and I know we have like Web 3.0 coming on with blockchain and, and some of the other technologies. Doctor, what would be your thoughts as far as the protection of data and, and how do you see that whole aspect of that in that area? Yeah, I, I think you're spot on. That is, uh, that, that, that is a very challenging discussion. Uh, and, and by the way, my, my doctorate is in big data, uh, so it is a passion of mine. That's and, and, and privacy, that's been a passion of mine for a long, long time. So, so we, we've touched on a topic here that, that's very near and dear to my heart. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I, I agree that um, the, the, the challenges that we're facing now from a data perspective uh, are, are immense. Mm-hmm. And if you look just from the privacy perspective, uh, these these various laws, GDPR was the first one, CCPA right in California came shortly after. Now, I think we have, at last count, it was seven or eight states yeah. mm-hmm. uh, in the U.S. that now have privacy laws enacted. Um, and so this, this idea that, that we have to be very careful as a company, right, from a company perspective, we have to be very careful about, number one, what information we collect, why we're collecting it who we're collecting it from, and getting actual permission from the individual that we're going to collect that information, right? That's what these laws are all about, and allowing the individual to control what we do with that. And and that they can say, hey, please forget me. Go delete everything that you know about me. Uh, And and so that alone, right, that was kind of the start of it. That's where GDPR and CCPA kind of started. So that alone is challenging. Uh, and has been challenging as companies are looking at, well, how do we comply with this? And, and when we have offsite uh, disaster recovery, right, tapes, backup tapes, right? How do we go through all those tapes and delete everything? Well, you can't. So how do you comply with this concept of forgetting someone? And so it's very challenging. Um, the, the, the bigger challenge I think is twofold. One is that these laws, as they're being adjudicated, as they're going through the the, the court system and and precedent is getting set, uh, they're starting to to expand. And and just in the last, I think it was the last month, maybe, there was a judge in the UK who uh, essentially issued a ruling that said, look, this, this concept of private data is not limited just to the information that, that we've previously limited it to about an individual's name, social security number, email address, right? He actually said, 
We're going to expand the concept of GDPR to anything that you can use to infer private information about an individual. And, and, and so now this concept of what's, what is protected information that companies have to you know, be careful with, that's now expanded significantly. Because all of a sudden, it's not just my name, social security number, phone number, but it's my spouse's name. Yeah. Because having someone's spouse's name, you could infer their sexual orientation from that. Mm-hmm. And so all of a sudden, that's now part of the protected information. And we have all this unstructured data, right? Such as maybe a, 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 a video clip from, a, from, from you know, footage showing me walking into a hospital. If someone can infer that I am now being treated from this hospital that specializes in this particular, you know, maybe type of cancer or something, well, all of a sudden that's protected. And, and so th- these, these things are changing rapidly. And as companies, we have to be very cognizant of those changes. And, and, and now we have to start protecting all of this information. So, you know, it's, it's changing very quickly. And, and then there's one other thing that, that you mentioned was the, this concept of uh, um, passive data generation, right? So as, as individuals, we are generating a lot of information without even providing our consent for it, without knowing that we're doing it. We're sending information to, to you know, Google or, or Apple or, you know, whomever, because we have this service with them. So they're able to track where we're going and what we're doing. All of that information is my information. It's my protected information. And I haven't given consent for all of the places where that's going to be shared and used. Uh, and so again, you know, the, the onus is now on the companies to recognize how did we obtain this information and do we have consent to use it? And, and these are questions that companies haven't had to deal with before because the thought has always been, if I can get the information on my systems, I can access it, I can analyze it, I can do whatever I want with it. Right, and people take that information and sell it to other people as some kind of like monetary revenue. When you think about it, that's that's someone else's information. So, I mean, it would be interesting to see what happens over the next few years. And I think that as more and more people are aware that their information is going out and and they're having all these breaches and, and what's happening with it, they're going to look at that and say, this is my data. This is my information. And it should be protected. I 100% agree with you. Yeah, well, that's the whole purpose of these privacy laws yeah. is to, to help enforce that, to regulate that. And, and, and again, I think this, this, the concept of consent is a very challenging concept. Because as an individual, I need to give you consent to store my information to use it for the purpose that I am giving it to you to, you know, to use, right? I'm giving you consent for this. So first of all, when, when we start talking about big data and information being shared, that consent doesn't necessarily apply to you sharing it. Now you may say, I'm gonna share this information so I'll give you consent to do that. But as you said you know, earlier, people don't always read through the fine print. And, and so they're just giving this broad consent, which really, at the end of the day, really gives a blank check. So broad consent now is this blank check to do whatever you want with my data. And I don't think that's going to hold up in the court systems over time. So so we'll have to see what happens from a consent perspective. Mm -hmm. Uh, And one of the ways, by the way, that that I think companies 
are trying to avoid having to deal with consent is they're saying, well, we're just going to take all the personal information out and, and we'll anonymize the information and then we can share it and then we can do whatever we want with it because it's no longer personal information. So we don't have to worry about it. Well, that information can be rehydrated. Mm-hmm. You know, there have been studies, there was a study uh, not too many years ago that, that said that with 15 demographic data points, I think it was something like 99.8% of people in the U.S. could be re-identified wow. just from 15 data demographic elements. So you can pull all of my personal information out, share this information. If there's 15 demographic elements, uh, identifying elements in there, that can be rehydrated and they can figure out, you know, that, that that's my information. And, and so, again, this concept of consent is, is going to be a big, big challenge going forward. I agree. It'd be interesting to see what happens with that over the next few years, especially when we think about not only just with our private information, but from a manip- manipulation standpoint. And, and uh, even when you look at like political and, and social, there's so many different elements that's involved with that. People can take the data and they can um, manipulate it to say what they want it to say. And, and who's, who's to say that that information is verified and true? You know, so it's, it's a big, yeah. big can of worms. Yeah, that's right. And that, and that, again, that's one of the huge challenges with big data is the whole veracity concept, right? There's the, the five Vs, which are now, I think, eight Vs of, of big data. But veracity is one of them, right? As, as information is coming into, flowing into whatever it is that's, that's analyzing the big data information, where is it coming from? What's the source of that information? Do you trust that particular data source, you know, a, a great example of that was Simon Weichart several years ago, uh, and he's not even a technologist, he's an artist. And he, uh, he, he decided to do this experiment where he took 100 cell phones, put them in a little red wagon, and he started walking down the street. And, and he had in his hand, you know, one of those phones, and he was watching Google Maps. And, and it's, it's fascinating, you can go to YouTube and look this up. He, he, he has the picture of him walking down this completely empty street and he's watching Google Maps and all of a sudden Google Maps starts to show that there's a traffic jam on that street. And, and it's, it's starting to slow, you know, show the red line, right? All this traffic, because he's got a hundred cell phones that are showing Google Maps that they're on this street. And literally it's him in a little red, you know, cart walking down the street. So yeah, veracity of information right, that's going out up to the cloud, that's going into these big data sources. Mm-hmm. How do you verify the veracity of that information? Wow. It's a challenge. It is, excellent points. So when you think about the future, and I, and I, I like what I read about with blockchain, I like when you think about smart contracts with Ethereum and, the, uh, and how you can actually have that verification process and, and you can have everything encrypted. What are your thoughts on, or if you even think that we're going to move towards uh, Web 3.0 and, and we're starting looking at more blockchain, what are your thoughts on the future? Yeah, I, I, I am a big fan of blockchain. Uh, and, and financial services is, in, in most of the kind of uh, opinion polls and surveys that I've seen, uh, financial services is probably the um, largest user or predicted to be the largest user of blockchain in the future for many of the reasons that you're identifying uh, smart contracts and, and uh, just the immutability, immutability uh, kind of factor of, of, of the blockchain. 
Um, so yeah, I, I think there's a lot of benefit to blockchain. Now, I mean, truth be told, I was talking with a friend uh, just the other day who we were talking about blockchain and how it can be used. And he said, look, you know, it, it, that's not because of blockchain. You can do that with a database. And, you know, yeah, he's right. It is really, at the end of the day, just a different kind of database. Um, and anything that you can do with blockchain, you could do with a database, but it's more challenging. Blockchain brings with it some inherent capabilities mm-hmm. from the immutable perspective, you know, from the historical perspective, from the, from the, you know, historical, being able to look back and actually see all of the transactions over time, um, Technically, you could get that with a database, but it is more challenging. So, I, yeah, I see, I see a lot of benefit uh, to, to, to very different uses of blockchain. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and by the way, I think one of the biggest uses for blockchain is going to be in the identity world. Oh, yeah. Because as a CIO, I would love nothing more than to get rid of all protected information in my environment. I, 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 wanna, I don't want to have any any data about our customers, I would love to have just a public key mm-hmm. and be able to just point out to a, a public blockchain to be able to say, okay, this is the customer that I'm dealing with and, and get the information as I need it, but never store any of that. Uh, because now that, that significantly reduces the attack surface for my environment because everything I have is publicly available anyway. Right. So that's that I see as a huge benefit of blockchain um, at some point in the future, right? It's not not today, but in the future when I all I need to get from someone is their public key that tells me who they are and, and gives me all their 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 private information that I need to to do what we need to do. That's going to be a beautiful day. I, I agree. I even think about that's that's an excellent example. I think about when we have all these problems with some of the uh, the polling places. When you think about voting. You know, you think about the, uh, with that all the the, the uh, how do you say the the chaos that comes from that. And so one day, I, and I always imagine we'll have something like blockchain. Everything's encrypted. People can place their votes, and then you know the information tabulated like instantaneously. And you know, so we don't have to worry about oh, this information got lost. Oh, we found another thousand posts over here. You know, so it'll be interesting to see how we can actually evolve to the, those those levels. Yeah, I know that. I mean, that that's obviously a big topic, right? The, the whole topic of, of uh, casting your vote and is it secure and all that. And yeah, I, I, again, I, I agree with you. I think that blockchain provides some some very promising capabilities uh, for for voting in the future. OK, so so, doctor, this is one of my last questions I have for you. And um, it would be as the CIO. What keeps you up at night? What what actually is one of those things that that bothers you and you is always a constant reminder in your mind? What would that be? Yeah. So for me, um, and th- this is this is probably uh, I'm probably not unique here, but it might be a unique way of of, uh, of thinking about it. The the thing that keeps me up at night is is uh, technical debt. It's it's older systems and and. Um, you know, how do we really move our environment from these old systems to the new ones? And, you know, one of the biggest reasons for being concerned about technical debt is because of the attack surface and, and the cybersecurity aspect to it, right? Older systems are more difficult to, uh, to protect. 
uh, and, and newer systems uh, have, have better controls. And so, you know, it, I'm, I'm sure everybody is concerned about cybersecurity. That's the thing that everybody, everybody's yeah. worried about. That's what keeps us all up at night is, mm-hmm. you know, you never want to find yourself uh, on the front page of any newspaper talking about a breach. Yeah. Um, but, but for me, the root cause of that really comes down to uh, technical debt and, and uh, really being able to move to uh, more secure systems as opposed to the less secure uh, older older systems. Okay, and that would be the just the infrastructure like desktops, tablets, smart devices. Okay. Yeah, it's 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 anything, right? Te- technical debt. The way that I define technical debt, and and uh, and and we we actually just did this. I was trying to figure out how to talk to my board about this, mm-hmm. and so I, I actually worked with my team to come up with a a formula. We actually put together a formula where we uh, assess technical debt in the same way that any company would assess debt leverage, like financial debt leverage. And so we look at supportability, we look at security, we look at uh, sustainability, you know, all of those factors that, that, that factor into how difficult is this to support in our environment? And is it holding us back from doing the things we want to do from a business perspective? And, and we, we boil all that down to a specific number. And now I can go to my board and I can see we are X percent leveraged from a technical debt perspective. Um, and, and, and then we can talk about what that means from a security, right? Cybersecurity perspective. And, and again, it's across the board. It's not just the custom developed solutions. It's, it's all the things you mentioned, the infrastructure, the connectivity, the even some cloud systems. There's technical debt in cloud systems. If they're not part of our forward-looking plan, then a, a cloud system, if it's hard to support, hard to sustain, and it's not part of our long-term plan, that's technical debt for us. So that's how we look at technical debt. And, and, and again, it provides this kind of common foundation now for, for talking with, uh, with our executive team and the board. Excellent. That's a it's a, a new terminology. I've I've never heard it explained like that before. And I like how you take that equation. Say it's not just one element. It's several different uh, singularities there that come to combine together. How you assess that 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 uh, debt level? Excellent. Yeah. It, I mean, it, again, I'm I'm working in financial services, and so it kind of helps to talk in terms that finance people understand, and they all understand debt leverage. (laughs) Now I'm just giving them a new way to think about technology, right? There's a technical debt leverage and it is a specific number. And here's how we move the needle on that number. And and it's it's actually created some very good conversations with that. Excellent. Dr. Knappen, I am so happy to have you uh, on our podcast today. This has been a very, very great and informative conversation. So thank you for taking your time to speak with me and and with our audience. And, and so I'm sure we all learned a little bit, a little bit more today than what we knew yesterday. So thank you for your time. I really appreciate it. Thanks for listening. If you've enjoyed this episode and you'd like to help support the podcast, please share it with others, post about it on social media, or leave a rating and review. To catch all the latest from your host, connect with Maurice on LinkedIn at Maurice Hamilton. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time.